last of all, the mounting wave, green and cold and plumed with foam, climbing over the land, took to its bosom Tar Muriel the queen, fairer than silver or ivory or pearls. Too late she strove to ascend the steep ways of the Meneltarma to the holy place, for the waters overtook her, and her cry was lost in the roaring of the wind. Welcome to Watch Party Lord of the Rings, where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation by considering and debating the creative choices of those brave souls that have wielded paint and music and drama to adapt Tolkien's writings, we gain a deeper understanding and greater appreciation of Tolkien's legendarium. Plus, it's just a lot of fun to talk about Tolkien. I am joined today by your host, Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Tar Muriel, the Queen of Numenor. Excellent. We're going to talk a lot about her today. And I am joined by Michael Rowland, a.k.a. R. Farazone. Oh, 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 that's, uh, we don't have that kind of relationship. We don't have that kind of relationship. I would, uh, I would never, I would never. Okay. Uh, well, as you can tell, today's episode is going to be all about news and leaks from Amazon's The Rings of Power. Um, and you probably got a hint of that. That's why, uh, I, I named Jen Tarmuriel and we got that quote in there because we're going to be talking a little bit about some hints and leaks relating to Tarmuriel and her role in the show. Uh, but before we jump into that, uh, as always, we just want to remind people that if you like what we're doing here, help us out. Uh, give us a rating, a like, you know, share us on social media. And uh, that, that really is the best way to support us. And we would really appreciate it. And please check out our other Watch Party podcast, Watch Party Wheel of Time, hosted by Rorick Garmston. That podcast, frankly, is is awesome. I am just a fan of it now. <laughs> I just like yeah, listening to it. Totally. Um, they're, they're doing a great job. So please do go check that out if you're into this, this fantasy stuff that we like to do. Um, before we get into the news, hey, Jen, how's it going? It's been a little while. It's going. We've got so, I mean, we've just got so much to cover today. I'm wondering if we're going to get through it in one episode, but no, there's been... no way. There's, there's tons, there's tons of news. There's tons of news, tons we've been, of spoilers. We've been kind of saving it up for a while. You know, we haven't done a news episode in a little while and, you know, we've taken sort of an unintentional, I don't know, month or so off here and recording. Um, this life just kind of happens sometimes. You know, I'll, I'll mention, kind of wanted to mention something that happened to me over the last couple of weeks is uh, we actually had to put our dog down, Toby, who had been with us for 14 and a half years. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we, we had to put him down last week and um, it was tough. He'd been around, so 14 and a half years, he was that's how old he was. And Amy and I have been together for 14 years. So she had gotten him just a few months before we met. And so he's really been kind of like our spirit animal for our relationship. And, um, you know, he, he finally just kind of succumbed. He had had cancer, sort of a doggy cancer a couple of years ago, uh, right after the pandemic started. And we had gotten him some treatment that actually really helped and prolonged his life for a couple of years. But uh, I guess it, it kind of came back all of a sudden. Um, you know, I was suspecting that it would come back someday, but it just came back all of a sudden and within the span of basically 48 hours, he stopped eating and then we had to put him down. So that was a really oh, sad day for us. Sorry. Let's dedicate. This one goes out to Toby. Toby, I'm raising a glass to you. Yeah. I wanted Good to. Uh, dog. Yeah. Dog. He was, he was the best. He was the sweetest dog. And uh, so I, what, what do you do when an animal passes? But, you know, in his honor on this podcast, I wanted to read a little, little something about Huon the Hound, everybody's favorite pepperoni from the Silmarillion. <laughs> um, this is from the tale of Baron and Luthien. But Huan the Hound was true of heart, 
and the love of Luthien had followed upon him in the first hour of their meeting, and he grieved at her captivity. Therefore he came often to her chamber, and at night he lay before her door, for he felt that evil had come to Nargathron. Luthien spoke often to Juan in her loneliness, telling of Beren, who was the friend of all birds and beasts that did not serve Morgoth, and Juan understood all that was said, for he comprehended the speech of all things with voice. So that's my favorite little Juan quote. Oh, you know, and that's my I'm boy Toby. Now. Thanks a lot, Michael. <laughs> Toby Eight was true of heart. Over here. <laughs> and Toby, would, he would just look up at you with those eyes. And I, you know, he, he, it seemed like he understood everything I said. So love you, buddy. Oh, they are just amazing. Dogs are amazing. I can't dogs. think of their equals. I mean, they are. Some they some really dogs are. are amazing. We still have one other dog left, and he is not uh, Toby's equal. <laughs> I'll just sorry, Teddy. You you don't measure up. Fortunately, he doesn't listen to this podcast. Uh, but it's funny, you know. Uh, so Ellie, our daughter, is um, a little over two years old, and she's you know old enough to talk and ask questions. And so this is you know her first exposure to death and the concept of death. So we had to explain to her, you know, because she would ask, "Where is Toby?" And so all of a sudden, we were like having to think about how do we explain death to our daughter? Not, not something that we had anticipated or, um, you know, prepared for. And it was funny. I was thinking, you know, I'm obsessed with Tolkien's writings and the legendarium and Tolkien was obsessed with the theme of death. I mean, the the whole legendarium kind of revolves around and explores that theme. That's one of the principal themes is mortality. And so you would think that I would have some like, I don't know, really good grasp on, on just, a a juicy little nugget of wisdom that I could distill the concept of death into like a, you know, one sentence explanation for my daughter, but I was just kind of drawing a blank, you know? Um, And we did our best of course, but I just wish that I had some, I don't know, there's gotta be a Tolkien quote out there. I should have at my fingertips ready to, to, to share in these moments. So this is a call out to to the fans. If anybody has some Tolkien wisdom that I could use to explain uh, death and mortality to my child. If ever I need to do that again, um, send me an email. I could really, I could really use it. This is these are parenting moments you don't plan for, um, and uh, you don't want to get caught flat-footed. And I felt a little bit that way. When There's got to be talk something. To her about it. There's got to be something, and it has to be digestible for a two-year-old. Which who knows what really translates uh, for a two-year-old? But yeah. I'm sure you know no one's going to put it better than Tolkien himself. So. Yeah. Yeah, good for you putting the call out there. We haven't had to do that with our two-year-old yet, but I'm sure it's coming. We have pets, so. Yeah. Hey, I mean, let's just turn this podcast into uh, uh, our own personal advice show so people can just give us advice, parenting advice. (laughs) There you go. A Tolkien parenting show. Tolkien-themed parenting advice. Now, that is a niche that is unserved, and I'm pretty sure everybody could use a little bit of Tolkien-based parenting advice. Absolutely. Okay. Should we get into the, the red meat here? Let's do it. Um, so as always, we want to give a huge spoiler warning. We are going to be talking about leaks and potential plot lines from the show. So if you are not interested in getting spoiled on the Rings of Power, uh, click away and you can come back for another episode later when we're talking about Peter Jackson or some other adaptation. Uh, you know, Those episodes will be for you and you can skip over all these Rings of Power episodes. Uh, but if you are down to explore the leaks, then this is the episode for you. And uh, we're going to start off with a tweet from Fellowship of Fans. Probably 99% of the leaks that we get come from Fellowship. We will have all the links to their tweets that we talk about in the show notes. And, uh, you know, we don't 
Fellowship has tons of good leaks. We don't even talk about all of them. We just talk about the, I think, the juiciest bits that are related to plot and character. Uh, but there's more to be had if you go check out their Twitter and, and website. So please do that. Give them a, some support. Um, they're friends of ours. So this first tweet, and I'll just read through it. Um, we have two sets of tweets. One that was tweeted out months earlier and uh, from the second one, but they kind of relate to the same subject matter. And this is one of the benefits of taking our time and waiting to talk about all these leaks, because now we have a few different leaks and we can kind of group them together by by subject matter rather than just talking about them chronologically. Um, and that's kind of a fun way to do it. So this first tweet, uh, exclusive, Ellen Dill will capture and bring Galadriel and Charlie Vickers, who we now know is Hallbrand, uh, to the Queen Muriel after Galadriel had fought off five plus Numenorean guards. In a later episode, Queen Muriel and Galadriel will give a speech to the Numenorean people stacked full of lore. The tweet goes on. When introduced to Queen Muriel in the throne room, Galadriel proudly proclaims her lineage and the whole of the House of Finarfin is mentioned by Galadriel. According to sources, this scene is meant to give many goosebumps. Description of the Numenorean Queen throne room is a massive circular room lit by real flames, huge pillars everywhere, three different levels, a circle of water around the central floor that flows out through an enormous arch, which opens out to a view over the city. And the last bit here, the Numenorians in the late second age absolutely hate the elves with some sources saying it is potentially mirroring in story racism towards the elves. Farazon also does not want to help the elves at all. So the first half of this, you know, basically is painting a scene and I'm excited to see this scene. Um, but let's talk about first the fact Galadriel in Numenor. What do you think about yeah. that? Interesting. I mean, they, they're trying, they're clearly trying to tie it all together early on. I don't know that it was totally necessary to do that. But Galadriel, I mean, what, what immediately is distracting to me is Galadriel fighting off five plus Numenorean guards. Totally, totally. Like, that's just the visual in my mind right now. Um, and I, I didn't know they were going to go. We knew she was going to be a warrior, but I didn't know they were going to go so heavy on, like, Galadriel badass right. warrior woman fighting five plus Numenoreans. Easy. You know, I, I hope it doesn't verge on, like, cheesy marvel-esque but we'll see 100 percent. Um, you know my i, I have a same re similar reaction and my qualms with it is not that it's galadriel fighting we've talked about that already like warrior galadriel we're up for that we don't think it's like super problematic with the lore or anything like that but it, it's it's i share your concern are they going to go over the top with it you know she's fighting off five guards now it's not that an elf couldn't fight five men i think that's also consistent with the lore that an elf should be able to do that, especially an elf of the lineage and grandeur of Galadriel. But still, I am getting Marvel vibes. It's, you know, are we, is she going to be Ninja Galadriel? Um, you know, how intense is this fight scene going to be? Uh, I don't know. So I hope they don't go over the top with it. Uh, I'm okay with fight scenes. I just don't want them to be excessive and CGI. You know, I don't want to see a, a Matrix style, you know, with mm -mm. camera panning in a weird way and, and stuff like that. So. Uh, we'll see how they execute it. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, the, and that next bit about um, Galadriel proudly proclaiming her lineage in the throne room. I mean, this has given us very strong Game of Thrones vibes. Sure, uh, sure. 
and uh, yeah, that could be really cool. She's clearly such a spitfire. I mean, from yep. all this information that we've gotten, so that's going to be really yeah. interesting to see. We already kind of knew that. Yeah, uh, and I'm I, I'm down for that because mm-hmm. the Galadriel we get in the Third Age is um, very different, and we talked about we talked about this before already, so I don't want to rehash it. But um, her role in the story is different, and her sort of attitude is is a little different. She's um, much calmer. She certainly seems perilous still, but uh, mm-hmm. not, as you said, a spitfire. She doesn't give off that vibe in the third age. And that's because by then, you know, there's the waning of the elves. Um, the elves really are coming to the end of their time in Middle Earth. She's getting tired of Middle Earth, ready to go back to Valinor. I think at this point in her life, it's a very, very different Galadriel that we see. It's right after the War of Wrath. She's pissed about her brother's death. She wants vengeance. I mean, that makes sense. That you know, That's consistent with the lore. Her brother did die in the War of Wrath. It makes sense that she would be upset and that you know, um, there is a line in the Unfinished Tales where she looked at the dwarves, the eye of a commander. She had a military mindset. So she, it makes sense to me that they would make the choice uh, when thinking about, well, what is her emotional state at this time? it makes sense that they would decide, well, she's kind of mad and she's upset mm-hmm. and she's looking out for vengeance. And that is kind of part and parcel with this idea that she is a spitfire. I love that word, word choice. And I'm going to keep using it. Um, so I am, I am down for, for that. Yeah. I'm down <laughs> for that spitfire Galadriel. Um, and I think this is a great potential scene. It, I'm, I'm down for it. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. The description of the throne room is exciting. Like, woo, I'm, I can't wait to see this architecture. Sounds beautiful. It thoughtful. strikes me as kind of Egyptian, right? Huge pillars, circle yeah. of water, you know, not that I'm like an expert on Egyptian architecture, but you know, when I saw the mummy, um, that's where my, all my expertise comes from. <laughs> <laughs> but whenever you see, uh, any sort of movie that, that plays on Egyptian architecture, I feel like this is a similar vibe, you know, vast cavernous halls, pillars, um, I guess it could also be consistent with Roman architecture. You know, the use of pillars, I think, is a Roman uh, architectural trait, but I don't know. Roman, Egyptian, either one works, but I would err on the side of Egyptian because Tolkien himself compared the mm-hmm. Numenorians in terms of their their cultural aesthetic to the Egyptians. So I would think that they would draw on that and thus draw from Egyptian styles to influence what the Numenorean buildings and clothes look like. Yeah. I mean, we know that the, the some of the leaks we've gotten have talked about how the sets are elaborate and beautiful. And so I'm just really excited to see it um, on screen. But, you know, getting to this last bit of news that you mentioned, Michael, uh, the Numenoreans hating the elves. Um, I think there's a late, I, maybe we'll get to this, but there was, you know, a, a leaked scene of a banquet where, Numenorians are hating on the elves, not wanting mm-hmm. to send help to them. Mm-hmm. This is all making sense um, specifically because the elves have the one thing that Numenorians do not have, which is immortality. Yeah. Um, and that's a very big part of it, uh, that tension between the two the two parties, which becomes, you know, a cavernous divide at one right. point. Yeah, I mean, that, that last bit of the tweet doesn't really tell us anything new because we already... No, it's very firm in the lore that in the late second age, Numenorians hate the elves. Like that's that's not telling us anything new. That's just hundred percent consistent with um with what we get in the Silmarillion. So it to the extent that it's confirming that they are staying consistent with that aspect of it, uh, you know, that's good. Um I but I think that the 
prejudice against the elves, the resentment of the elves is going to be something that will inform the Numenorean plotline almost from the jump. I mean, at, you know, maybe if they're compressing the timelines, maybe in the very beginning, the hatred won't be as strong because I think Tar Palantir is maybe not yet dead or had just died. Well, I guess, I guess in the lore, in during Tar Palantir's life, the resentment and prejudice against the elves was already pretty firmly rooted. But if they're compressing the timelines, they might try and pull up like the early Second Age Numenorians when they were not resentful against the elves. And so kind of start there and we'll see like over the course of, you know, a generation, uh, uh, see that change um, that, that might happen. But I think the either it will start with extreme prejudice, which will inform everything, or we will see the slow decline into prejudice and hatred. You know, since we're already talking about the first season and that racism and the hatred is playing a role in the first season, I would bet on the former that we're going to pretty much early on start with the Numenoreans in a place where they resent the elves. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's such a, that's really a central plot line. So they're bringing it in early, introducing here's where we're at. Here's where this relationship stands. Um, what do you think about, what do you think about the fact, going back a little bit, about the fact that Galadriel finds herself in Numenor. I think we've talked about this a little bit, but not really. Um, you know, in the lore, there's no indication whatsoever that she ever travels to Numenor. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, of course, it's not expressly said that she didn't. It's not clear what she was doing for much of the Second Age. Um, you know, we get the uh, tale of um, Galborn and Galadriel in The Unfinished Tales. We get a couple different versions of that, but in neither version does it, give a comprehensive account of their travels for every year of, you know, all the 3000 years in the second age. So it is possible that they could have made the trip. Although I would have thought if Tolkien had that in mind, he would have said so. So I I think basically this is a blank spot and they're, they're taking um, some creative license to send Galadriel there. So my question for you is, I guess just generally, what is your thinking about that? Do you like the idea for going to, to Numenor and plot wise, what do you think would cause her to end up going there? Jeez, I mean, I think they're really, I think they're really reaching with this. I think that it was unnecessary. They could have just introduced her in Middle Earth. She was in Middle Earth during her mm-hmm. travels. There, as you said, there's no indication she ever went to Numenor. But I think their thought behind putting her there is that we need to identify her as our heroine really early on Numenor is going to be a major major plot point and location where a lot of the action is going to take place and so I think they said I think the showrunners thought we need to put her where the action is right so that let's the put our main characters together let's so the audience has a chance to latch on and mm-hmm. connect with her early um, because they're going to follow her presumably through the entire story which might be the reasoning for putting her there, but there, there's no, I can't think of a reason why she would, um, why she would actually go Yeah. from, from the, from the lore, you know, this right, is, right. has got to be just an invented, a totally invented plot line that, that got her there. Yeah. So I think to your point, from a storytelling perspective, it makes sense to put our main characters together. I agree to a certain extent, and I understand why they would make that choice just from a logistical storytelling perspective. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of fun to be had when you have main characters um, acting out important plot lines in totally disparate parts of the world 
Because when they finally do come together in subsequent seasons, that is a huge deal. You know, so part of the fun mm-hmm. is seeing these separate plot lines slowly move and migrate towards each other. Uh, and that's what we got and love so much in Game of Thrones. I mean, you have yes, plot they lines did in that very well. totally par- different parts of the country. They're separate, you know, separate on opposite ends of the continent. Uh, and they're having these huge plot lines. And the, you know, the episodes where their plot lines finally cause them to cross paths. It's like so exciting, you know, and oh right. my God, they're, these characters that we love are finally going to meet each other. That's so cool. And they're missing an opportunity, I think, um, by throwing Galadriel into the Numenorian mix right away. Um, I think having Galadriel and Numenor on separate paths for an extended period of time would have made their unification and their crossing of paths that much more like uh, emotionally and dramatically gratifying. So they're mi- they're missing out on that opportunity, I think, from a storytelling perspective. Yeah, I totally agree. On the lore question, I think that um, they're basically having Galadriel replace Gilgalad to a certain extent. You know, uh, if you go back to our, if the listeners go back um, and listen to our Aldarian and Arendus episode, starting in episode six, we have like six different episodes where we really covered that second age story. You'll remember that at the end of that story, or at least the end, <laughs> that story was never ended. It is unfinished, but um, where Tolkien stopped writing, Gilgalad sent a letter to the king of Numenor, basically begging the Numenorians for help in the war against the rising evil, because Gilgalad had a sense that he didn't know it was Sauron, but he knew that there was some old servant of Morgoth that was stirring the pot in, in Middle-earth, and that the elves would need help from the Numenorians in order to defeat it when it came to that. Basically, war is coming, we need your help. And that's that letter is what caused the king of Numenor to sort of step down and give the scepter to Aldarion, who he knew had more of a mind for military conquest and things like that. He, he would be better suited for, um, you know, the military conflict that it seemed was inevitable. So to the extent that Gilgal- it was Gilgalad's letter and his request for help that caused the Numenorians to jump into the fray, I think that what the showrunners are doing is they're having Galadriel fill that role. She goes to Numenor and mm. she's the one who asks for aid. She says, there is an evil rising um, and we, you need to get involved. And I think that that's what all this confrontation is going to be about, where she's in the throne room. She declares herself. I think she's going to say, um, you know, evil is here. Come join the party. Um, that, you know, there's going to be conflict with the Numenorians there. And we'll see in some later tweets. I don't even know if we'll get to them today. But basically, you know, there is a Numenorian army that sets out for Middle-earth. So we know that they get convinced to send an army to Middle-earth. I assume that it's because of Galadriel's pro- uh, prodding. So I think it's, they're basically saying, okay, Gilgalad was the one who got Numenor to get involved via his letter. Let's make it an in-person request and let's make it Galadriel instead. So I kind of think that's what they're doing there. Wow. That is a smart choice. It all makes sense. And also, perhaps, you know, there's a reason they want to keep Gilgalad in Middle Earth. So much, so much to be revealed. But I think you must be right based on the fact that, you know, they're subsequently set, they subsequently set out and the army goes. Mm-hmm. It's got to be that something happened recently to, to prompt that. So I think that to throw another wrinkle into here. So I think that her being in Numenor is the sort of the, um, the first domino that falls that causes Numenor to get into the battle. Okay. 
Did she go out to Numenor of her own volition intentionally? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because um, we see her in the trailer, um, shipwrecked, you know, and not only in the trailer, but we'd heard leaks about this before, that there's there are scenes of her, you know, being shipwrecked in, in a massive storm. So I don't think she took out an elven boat and got shipwrecked. It just doesn't sound like an elven boat <laughs> to me. Um, maybe she did, but I think, well, I don't, I don't know what causes her to get shipwrecked and not only shipwrecked, but shipwrecked with the Charlie Vickers's character. What's his name? Uh, Halbrand. I don't, I don't know how they get thrust into the same situation, shipwrecked in the sea. I don't know what brings them there, but I think they get shipwrecked and they unintentionally end up sort of floating to Numenor somehow. Hmm. And why were they on the boat in the first place? So many questions. Right, no. Why were they on the ship in the first place? Is is That's like the major question. I think we should jump to the next piece of news because it involves those two. Yes, yeah, good point, good point. If you're enjoying Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, you really should check out our Wheel of Time podcast hosted by Rourke Narmston. Rourke is a Wheel of Time expert and each week breaks down the latest episode from Amazon's adaptation of The Wheel of Time with a panel of brilliant and funny guests who have never read the books. If you've already read the Wheel of Time books, this podcast will be fun for you because you'll get to experience the show through the eyes of first-timers. And if you're new to the Wheel of Time universe yourself, then Watch Party Wheel of Time is really perfect because there are no spoilers. That's right, Watch Party Wheel of Time gives you spoiler-free analysis and discussion of each episode. Check it out today, available on every major podcasting platform. Watch Party Wheel of Time. So this this, um, next set of tweets it basically talks about the same type of scene, but it it adds some new color to it um, and a slightly different context. So, uh, quote, Galadriel and Halbrand are brought before the court of Muriel and Farazon by Elendil to the surprise of everybody, still in the rags from when they were rescued from the shipwreck. Tense introduction follows verbal standoffs between Galadriel, Muriel, and Farazon, where Galadriel proclaims her lineage. It's Halbrand who tries to act as the conciliatory one and keeps Galadriel's rage in check. They're both then marched off to their quarters or jail, this is unconfirmed, uh, in parentheticals it says unconfirmed, by guards, during which time Halbrand secretly gets a dagger from Elendil. This is when Galadriel fights off guards, not when she arrives in Numenor, uh, as was indicated by the previous tweet. Uh, Continuing the tweet, in the trailer, the Numenorians are saving Galadriel and Halbrand from the shipwreck. During their voyage to Numenor, all three... Elendil, Halbrand, and Galadriel become closer. We still, it still doesn't answer our our question, the, the million dollar question, but um, we certainly get a little more plot here and insight. Well, so let's really kind of tease this out a little bit. So the very last sentence, during their voyage to Numenor, all three, Elendil, Halbrand, and Galadriel become closer. That tells me that they were far enough away from Numenor that the trip to Numenor was you know long enough that they had time to hang out. Like if if Galadriel was on her way and she gets shipwrecked, you know, within sight of Numenor or somewhere close to Numenor, that wouldn't be a very long trip. If she got shipwrecked in the middle of the ocean, what are the odds that they actually find her? It's the middle of the freaking ocean. So I think she gets shipwrecked somewhere closer to Middle Earth, like closer to a port, a highly trafficked port. Um, that would so it'd make a little bit more sense for her to be found. It's then a long enough journey to Numenor for them to like hang out and talk and get to know each other and build trust. Enough trust that Elendil would actually give her a dagger after being taken away by the king's guards. 
Um, so that's that's my guess there. Do you do you have a different take? No, absolutely. I think you're right. Um, and is this is this the mission that you're thinking of? They're all on a mission to inform the Numenorians, hey, there's trouble. Well, this is trouble this is what I don't it. know. I don't know if if Galadriel intentionally went on a mission to go inform Numenor, or if she was doing something else, like, you know, maybe she was taking a boat into the north as part of her general pursuit of Sauron's orcs. Because I think uh, we got from some other leaks that there would be battles in the north, like she was pursuing uh, Morgoth's old forces into the north, and, like, the north is very icy. Um, There's, like, the Fordwaith, and and that area is, like, I mean, there are stories of people getting shipwrecked and lost in the those icy waters. So maybe that's what happens. She's pursuing the orcs in the north, and she just gets shipwrecked as a, you know, on her way to to that, and gets scooped up by the Numenorians, and they take that take her back to to Numenor. Um, or maybe maybe I'm totally off base, and maybe she actually did intend to go to Numenor, and she just got shipwrecked on the way. I don't know. We really have no way no way of knowing. Um, but the fact that she is like kind of she is in rage when she's brought before the queen um, would seem to indicate that she doesn't want to be there at all. You know, she's kind of mad that she got captured and brought all the way to Numenor and hauled in front of the queen. Um, Or maybe she's just mad that maybe she did want to be there, but she's mad at the way she's being treated when she gets there. That's, that was my thought. She's being roughed up. And so she has to proclaim her lineage. Listen, do you have any idea who you're dealing with? (laughs) Do you know That's who I am? Picturing. Do you know who I am? Do you know who my dad is? Okay. Do you know who yeah, my dad is? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so actually, you know, that would certainly make sense because the top of this tweet said she's still in rags from when they were rescued from the shipwreck. So maybe that cuts against my first theory because if it was a long enough journey, like multiple days, you got to think that the Numenorians would at least give them some dry clothes, some clean clothes. Um, otherwise, I don't think she'd be very happy with Elendil because if Elendil's the one that picks her up and he's forcing her to chat for three days but not giving her a clean change of clothes, I don't think she'd be very friendly with Elendil. So um, if they're friendly and get to know each other and yet are still arriving in rags, I'm not sure how those two data points jive, but maybe it is a maybe it is a slightly shorter trip. I don't know. Yeah, this whole voyage and this whole coming together is such a such a mystery but i really am liking this theory that she is coming to tell numenor Mm -hmm. that you know sauron's forces have mobilized again and we know that they discover we know she she is fighting off orcs in uh in middle earth hunting Mm -hmm. them down so that all kind of tracks to me yeah it is interesting that it is elendil an elendil ship that scoops her up. And, you know, I think that kind of, that tracks with the lore. Uh, we knew that uh, the faithful had ports in Middle Earth. They had sort of set up shop. I think, I hope I'm getting this right, but off the top of my head, they had their ports in sort of more the north of Middle Earth, whereas the Black Numenorians um, were occupying more of the, the southern ports. So I guess maybe that, again, is sort of weighs in favor of a little bit of her getting scooped up in one of the northern ports, because if that's the area that's being trafficked by the faithful, and we know that it's Elendil, one of the faithful, that scoops her up. Maybe it could be around the north of Middle Earth. So it's. I am it, pretty excited that we get Elendil. We get introduced to Elendil and Galadriel very early on. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, that's exciting. Two major players, and we're going to get to see them in action from the get go. I'm not sure how early in the season this is. I, I wonder because um, this says that 
Galadriel is hauled before the court of Muriel and Farazon. So this is at the point, or at least standoffs between, that's not true. All right, I'm misreading it. Uh, it says, tense introduction follows. Oh, wait, no. All right, it does. My reading comprehension is, is off. First tweet uh, here is, Galadriel and Halibrand are brought before the court of Muriel and Farazon. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we know that chronologically then, this is after the time when Farazon takes Muriel to marriage by force and basically seizes the scepter from her. Um, so this is a court where Farazon now is firmly in power, I would think, um, unless they're taking a totally different approach with Muriel and Farazon. If, if they're taking away the sort of rape and forced marriage component of it, and they Muriel's very a well might character. be. Um, yeah, they might be to make it a little more family friendly, I suppose. Digestible. Yeah, yeah, right, right. S- stomachable. Um, but uh, if they are keeping true to the lore, then the the political situation in Numenor, uh, when combined with Galadriel's arrival, would be really interesting. Basically, we might have a powder keg here. Farazon has basically seized the scepter. You got the faithful who are now kind of on the outs. Mm-hmm. Um, you got Muriel, who was at heart one of the faithful, but now she's been forced to marry Farazon and be sort of under his thumb. We don't know. Obviously, there's going to be marital tension. There's probably tension between the, those factions within the court. We don't know what Farazon's done to suppress them at this point. Elendil, who is one of the faithful, who we know the faithful are uh, oppressed at some point, probably closer to the end of the season, but maybe there's some of that going on already. Now he's walking in with a powerful elf who everybody hates. Um, this is like a, this is definitely a powder keg and Elendil is bringing the match. And so this is going to be a very, the more I think about it, this is going to be an extremely tense scene, very fraught. There, there's opportunities for a lot of uh, emotional interplay and dramatic tension between multiple characters on uh, multiple different levels. So um, this could be a very, very well done scene. A lot of potential here. A lot of potential. Yeah. And and a lot of introductions to major players and plot. But while we're talking about Queen Muriel. um, One one last thing before we move on to the next next tweet. I always got to do this. One one last thing. (laughs) But we know that. um, Okay. So Halbrand secretly gets a dagger from Elendil. And this is when Gladwell fights off the guards. So there is a tense exchange. Obviously, they don't like what Galadriel has to say. They're hauling her off to, you know, Numenorean jail or, you know, a, a padded cell of some kind. Um, and, but they escape. At least it sounds like they escape. Galadriel fights off the guards. I assume that means that they escape. Maybe she fights them off and then is subdued by, you know, she fights off five, but is subdued by 10 more or something. Um, but I, I, I'm assuming that they escape, which, okay, then what does that look like? Um, it, are they going to actually escape from the island? Are they like going to get on a boat and go back to Middle Earth to actually escape? Um, because that's kind of curious, considering that Numenor subsequently decides to send an army to Middle Earth, which would make one think that Galadriel's entreaties were effective. Um, so I'm really, really curious to find out more about why Galadriel and Halbrand are escaping and what their escape kind of triggers, like how they could actually effectively escape. And what or if they escape, I mean, maybe Numenor. they don't, and they're able to, you know, be let out of Numenorean jail, right? <laughs> and right. Uh, reason with them, and that would make just as much sense that they then return to Middle Earth with the fleet that Numenor sends. Right. That that makes sense. All right. Why don't you read out the next tweet? 
Okay, the next tweet. Uh, Queen Muriel is apparently having visions of buildings and cities being wiped out underwater. Um, one of the visions or dreams took place when Muriel was visiting and giving blessing to new Numenorean mothers. The next one reads, On the Amdalin sets, some dock market sets were made to be flooded and multiple sightings of bodies floating in water, which is presumably the filming of the Numenorean city wipeout scenes. The next tweet, Muriel will be Queen Muriel at some point in season one, but it is unsure whether she would be serving as a regent queen while Tar Palantir is getting older, or that she's just an outright queen with Farazone as her right hand. The next one, uh, Muriel joins the Numenorean army to Middle-earth and was present as a key figure on the orc versus Numenorean battle sets, but it is said that during action or at some point she will be partially blinded. Um, source character overview there's a quote well she looks amazing very regal and her outfits are breathtaking muriel is clearly proud and intelligent wise in the ways of politics she is also good and it seems she would choose to do the right thing rather than the thing that would give her the most personal gain unlike Farazone, who would do the opposite so lots of insight into this queen muriel i was not aware I think it's interesting that she has sort of the gift of foresight or like visions. This is something that's noteworthy. I don't, I don't think that Numenorians are referenced as having that traditionally. Um, but it's interesting that she's getting some premonition about what's to come. Yeah, absolutely. I don't believe there's anything in the lore specifically saying that she had the the gift of foresight. Um, not that this, not that foresight is like a superpower. Um, that someone is like born with like you know a mutant superpower um sometimes people are you know they have visions sometimes like the valar will bring people visions there's all kinds of incidents uh, examples of that throughout the silmarillion and uh, like for ex- example faramir and boromir were given visions um they had dreams and that's what brought ended up bringing boromir to the council of elrond and why he ended up being part of the part of the fellowship right he had a vision and it's not that boromir had like this power of foresight it's just he had a vision, and I think we can deduce that it was one of the Valar that that sent him that vision. Um, although it's not exactly confirmed, but the point being, um, whether or not she has like the general gift of foresight, she is given foresight as to the pending downfall of Numenor. And I love the poetic aspect of her, you know, going to to bless new mothers. You know, she's in a in a place where there's new life, and then she has visions of, you know ultimate destruction and downfall of her entire people. Um, and if this is happening relatively early on where she's having these visions, clearly that's going to influence the way she approaches things, the way she approaches Galadriel and Farazon. It's going to be a part of um, how she receives everything that happens throughout the, the, the season from, from the jump. So I, I love that we're going to get these um, little visions from her. I do wonder if that kind of takes the sting out of the ultimate downfall of Numenor. You know, it makes it less of a surprise if we're getting that foreshadowed so strongly. Because people who aren't told, even people who uh, um, watch the movies or are casual fans who like read the book, they wouldn't necessarily remember that Numenor was drowned, certainly not in the way it was. So that would be like a big dramatic ending to this season. And they're apparently foreshadowing it very heavily from the beginning. So that is an interesting choice. 
Yeah, very interesting. And she, I, I think it's, <laughs> I think the whole dynamic is really interesting that they've sort of flipped it. Like this says, Tar Palantir, you know, he's getting older, so Muriel's the queen with Ferrazone as her right hand instead of the opposite. Um, oh yeah, which is yeah, which is more. Um, it it, it just I I I I like it. I like that we're actually going to see like a a powerful queen figure leader. That's something different that we haven't gotten to see. And um, I like her dis- the description of her as you know proud, intelligent, wise in the ways of politics. That is consistent. She is politically yeah. minded. Um. In the books, but yeah, I, I'm I'm excited for her character a lot more after uh, reading these descriptions. Yeah, and the actress who is playing Tarmuriel is, I think, a wonderful actress. I watched um, there was a very graphic, but I think quite good um, series called Spartacus, and it was about you know the story of Spartacus, <laughs> the Roman gladiator, and she played. Um, uh, a slave or an enslaved person who was part of the slave revolts that Spartacus led. And uh, she was a main character, just a total badass, very good actress. She did a very good job. So oh, I think they picked a good actress here and she will fit the bill for this sort of uh, regal bearing. Um, it, I do want to talk about what you pointed out, which is very interesting that, you know, the tweet, it, they're unsure whether she will either be the regent queen or an outright queen with Farazon as her right hand. I wonder, so in the lore, it is pretty clear that Tarpalantir dies. She becomes queen. So there mm-hmm. is some period of time where she is the actual queen and she's not married. So she's a single queen. Farazon is not in the picture yet, or at least he has not become the king yet. And then he forcefully marries her. And then basically, okay, now I'm the husband. Uh, so, and he basically seizes the scepter, uses. However, he does that through, you know, his political wiles uh, or just, you know, maybe the uh, sexism in Numenor is still such that uh, the the husband of the queen can just kind of say, oh, I'm the king now, so I get the scepter. Um, but I wonder if they're going to have that moment where that, that time period where Muriel is the actual queen before Farazone, or if, as this tweet suggests, um, She's either the regent queen while Talpillinger is alive, and then Farazone gets involved before the death, and then you know upon death, it's basically Farazone the whole time. I, I just wonder how they're going to handle that. I would like to see full on Queen Muriel at some point, where she is like truly the one in power, just because I think it makes for much more interesting drama. Definitely, I, I think so. In here, it says that she joins the Numenorean army to Middle Earth, which is kind of wild. That the that is kind of wild. <laughs> yeah, that the king or queen would leave Numenor to go to battle, like it's kind of unusual. And like when you're an island kingdom, to leave, to actually leave your island, it's a little more significant than like riding away because you could always ride back. But like, but I wonder if she leaves because of the tension with she and Farazone. Like I'm assuming they're going to keep some tension between those two. I so my guess actually is that he is all like sweet as honey until she leaves. Um, that she doesn't realize he's actually as bad a dude as he is. And it's when she leaves, I bet she leaves because she thinks she can trust him. And she entrusts the rule of him to, of Numenor to him as her regent. 
And then while she's gone, he uses that opportunity to sort of usurp all the power. And so that when she's back, he's like, sorry, babe, I'm in charge now. I'm in charge. Ooh, it could be either one. It could be that he she realizes who he is and she has to get out Mm. because he has slowly but surely, you know, taken over and pulled key figures to his side. Or if it's your theory is that she leaves, he takes over, assumes the total control, um, and she comes back and realizes it's too late. Yeah, we're just, uh, we're getting, it's so fun to get the plot, major plot points um, like this and then put it together. Yeah. It's exciting. (laughs) It is starting to coalesce a little bit. Like, we're starting to get a picture of what the plot could Mm -hmm. look like. I mean, there's still tons of gaps and it could go a lot of different directions, but um it, it, it is the picture starting to fill in just a little bit we're getting the outlines of it mm-hmm. um so i i've you know i think queen muriel has the potential and I, I think i talked about this really really early on she has the potential to be one of the most interesting and significant characters the most dramatically resonant characters um if for no other reason other than her her death which we quoted at the top of this show um you know when Farazone goes off to try and overthrow valinor like a chump a fool and a chump um, and causes Iluvatar to drown the entire island and destroy the entire island. Um, you know, at that moment, she is she is climbing to the top of the Mental Tarma, which is a holy place. And even to the end, the Mental Tarma was not despoiled. Uh, that was the place where they would worship Iluvatar. She climbs to the top of Iluvatar, um, this holy place, just as Iluvatar. <laughs> you know, the place where you go to worship Iluvatar, just as Iluvatar is destroying the entire island, and she doesn't get saved, even though. I, I assume her heart was never corrupted. Um, you know, she goes down with with her entire country. So it's just so, so tragic. It's a and tragedy. I, oh, for sure. You know, I, I think that she should be kind of like, uh, you know, her arc is a proxy for the arc of Numenor in a way and not the downfall mm-hmm. aspect in terms of the corruption because I, I don't think she ever gets corrupted. But the tragedy of, you know, the good queen, Tarmuriel, going down with the ship, as it were, at the end due to the the corruption of her people. It's, we experience the tragedy through her character. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly going to be a really, really powerful part of the narrative. And one I am most looking forward to is watching Numenor's story play out because it is so very different than what you get with the rest of uh, middle earth stories in middle earth. I mean, you could, you Mm -hmm. could make the argument, oh, there is no you catastrophe in the story of Numenor, except that, you know, there's people who escape and da da da, it all comes back around much, much later, but. Right, right. Good point. But it is one of the most tragic uh, stories in all the lore because, because it is destroyed. (laughs) Yeah. That's such a good point. Yeah. I mean, because um, Numenor is all catastrophe <laughs> not you catastrophe right. all, all catastrophe and and for our listeners so that they know what we mean with you catastrophe you catastrophe was a concept that tolkien kind of invented um which is it's basically the opposite of a catastrophe a catastrophe being a, a sudden terrible unlooked for event um i guess it doesn't always have to be unlooked for but it's just a totally terrible and destructive event uh, you catastrophe is kind of the opposite. It's a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story. And in Tolkien's version of that, it's, it's usually kind of unlooked for. It's, it's a surprise. It's not expected. And that's kind of what the Lord of the Rings was all about. It has this wonderful you catastrophic turn, catastrophic turn um, with Frodo only destroying the ring because Gollum 
is there and you know Frodo ultimately is not able to throw the ring into the in, into the fire he kind of in a way fails um or at least fails in what he intended intended to do but because Gollum this evil villain uh is there and tries to take the ring from Frodo in that moment that results in the Frodo and the ring being destroyed and so it's this like confluence of of factors that you couldn't have predicted but you know the the pity of Bilbo in not killing Gollum way back in the hobbit the wisdom of Frodo in, in keeping Gollum alive and taking him on as their guide for as long as he did. All these sort of decisions, these highly moral decisions, ultimately led to Gollum being there um, and, and, and the ring being destroyed. And then you look you know, elsewhere in, in the battlefield um, where Gandalf and Aragorn and Merry and Pippin, all those other main characters, they really have no hope in fighting Sauron's forces. They are, you know, crossing their fingers and they're riding to the Black Gates. The only purpose being to draw his forces away, keeping alive that sliver of hope that maybe, maybe Frodo is still out there. Um, but they really don't have any real hope of that. But they just know it's their only hope. It's a sliver of hope, but it's it's all they got. And so they really throw all their cards on the table um, in the hopes that Frodo will do it. And, and he does. And it's kind of a, a you catastrophe. Um, same as like, you know, the eagles appearing. That's a, a minor catastrophe. Um, yeah, once you start noticing it, it's everywhere. And it is sort of, for me, it's like ultimate redemption. There will mm. be ultimate redemption. And it will be in spite of and sometimes because of fallen characters, fallen circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. And I think for Tolkien, this was a deeply religious concept as well. Yeah. But um, yeah, the notion of they're always fighting the long defeat and the catastrophe is the unexpected and unhoped for victory at the end that, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. they've been losing this whole time, slowly losing, losing, losing lots of fruitless. Elrond says it's in the Council of Elrond. I've seen many fruitless victories. So even their victories are fruitless because ultimately it's the long defeat. But then in the end, there's this you, you catastrophic moment where they do actually defeat Sauron. It's, it's really a beautiful concept. Yes, and, and some, I would say it's present in the majority of his stories. There are, just, there are just a few where it seems at first glance to be absent. And I would say you sort of have to dig in the Numenorean story. So I wonder, um, yeah, I mean, because, and that's the point of why we're talking about this is it isn't right. there for the Numenorean story, really. It's all catastrophe. Right. Um, but as you point out, there's no um, victory or semblance of a victory. There's just survival, right? So the, some of the faithful survive and escape, and they are the seeds that ultimately lead to the victory at the end of the Lord of the Rings. But and that the, is the that's the you catastrophe right there. Right. But, I but wonder we if they will see that. No, we, we won't see that. But we could see. I mean, we will see the the last uh, the war of the um, elves and men, the war of the last alliance at the end of the second age where they you know, cut the ring from Sauron's finger and they think that they've defeated him then. So we know because of the Lord of the Rings that Sauron comes back, that it is that that was a fruitless victory, as Elrond would call it. We know that. But that's probably going to end up being the penultimate victory of the this series so are they mm. going to treat that victory in terms of the dramatic representation when sauron is defeated as like yay we've won um are they going to try and give it the you you catastrophic spin that that tolkien liked to use and that he used in lord of the rings or are they going to kind of treat it as 
you know, give us like a wink and a hint that, hey, this is actually a fruitless victory, you know, because we all know that the Lord of the Rings is coming and that Sauron's not actually dead. How do you think they're going to they're going to treat it? I think we have to have a happy ending, an ending that feels we happy. We have to have a yeah. We have to have a celebration and we have to have a celebration and for all intents and purposes they for the time being for many years there is peace even though you know there's whispers of a nameless fear. <laughs> like even though Sauron is not actually defeated, um there are many years of peace where he has been severely crippled and has fled and so even though i i think it's perfect that the audience knows well you know evil wasn't ultimately defeated but it will mm-hmm. be at some point and these characters deserve you know a hard won victory right and you know i i think if they do their job right we'll all just get lost in this narrative and the subsequent story that we know is coming with the lord of the rings the fact that that's out there you know it doesn't necessarily have to ruin the the victory that they achieve at the end of the second age against Sauron, you know, and our ability to appreciate it. And for those who are, you know, not as familiar, the casual viewer is just going to may not even realize what they're saying. Or maybe they will when he cuts the, you know, when Sauron gets the ring cut from his hand, but that will probably just excite them so much. Right. To see that play out again. Um, right. As the ending. I wonder if they're going to to refilm that, like, but shot for shot, make it the way that Peter Jackson did. I think did. they have, have to have some continuity. I, I think they have to. I, I wonder think if we they have would to reshoot be... it. It doesn't have to be shot for shot. I actually don't think they should do it shot for okay, shot. Okay, that was going to uh, be my question. Yeah, I mean, because obviously they have to have this scene. But I mean, to be true to the lore, it would be completely different because in Peter Jackson's prologue, you know, Sauron dies as a result of Isildur cutting the ring from his finger, whereas in the books. He is killed by El- Elendil and Gilgalad, and right. Isildur cuts the ring off of his dead corpse, basically. So it's it's very, very I different. Wonder, I wonder if they're, yeah, I wonder which they're going to go with. Mm-hmm. It, it'd be somewhat like claiming, we're going to claim our own interpretation and stick closer to the books by having, you know, Sauron die and have the ring cut subsequently, or if, yeah, if they're going to try to be consistent and give fans, you know, excite the casual viewer with, oh, 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 I recognize right, this. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, we know that they're trying to create some continuity with Jackson in terms of aesthetic, and so I would think that they would have in mind trying to keep some continuity with his actual plot choices and scene choices, and if it would... But it might be too much of a wink, you know, at the the ending of the season, because that is like the end of of this entire series. Is too much of a death. wink for who? Is my question. All, all I'm the thinking movie fans. of the casual. All the casual fans. It's a wink to them, you know. It it's it's catering. But to... if I were a casual fan, I think I'd be excited about that. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be exciting for those fans. I think it. I I th- I think it would, and that that's that's my point. It, they will be tempted to keep it consistent with Jackson's version, um, right. to 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 wink at those fans. Um, I kind of would like to see a different version, just because I want to see something new. I've said this time and time again. I just want to see something new. Just take give us a new take. We've already seen the Jackson take. Let's just have a different take, and you have a great excuse to do a different take because the different take is consistent with the lore. Um, so I would love to see that. And, you know, Elendil and Gilgalad fighting Sauron, that has all kinds of, uh, uh, great opportunities for just like fun 
effective dramatic action. They can have a, like a really really epic battle between those characters. Yeah, you know, definitely. Don't miss that. And that opportunity. could be a cool. Yeah, that could be a cool battle scene. And there's a way they could kind of do both things. You know, we're gonna have the battle scene with those three, and then we're going to keep that shot where Elendil does cut or Isildur cuts the ring. But it'll look different. It'll be different, but people will people will get it. Because it totally changes how we view Isildur, right? You know, in Jackson's version, right. he's the hero in the in right. the heat of battle cutting the ring off. Whereas otherwise it's like he's not the one who killed Sauron. It was his dad who's dead. And Sauron and Isildur's just like, you know, bending over Sauron's corpse, like sawing the ring off, you know, his his dead hand. It's not nearly as heroic. I think it's a lot is going to depend on how Isildur is depicted in the series. Who is this guy? You know, what is his character at this time? What, I think he will be one of the most complex and interesting characters. I think that's Yeah, definitely. Be. Really excited. This episode is brought to you by Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. Katie and Jordan have some lovely art they would love for you all to check out. They have custom bookmarks, prints, and even these beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of our favorite fantasy series like Lord of the Rings, A Song of Ice and Fire, and, of course, The Wheel of Time. You all really should check out 4Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four and cats with a K. 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. Well, I think we've covered these tweets enough and we've got, oh boy, a whole bunch more, but let's save those for a future episode. we got quite a few of these coming up, so... Uh, more to come. I think now it's time to do some mailbag. All right. We have, uh, you know, done a bad job of attending to our mail in the past, <laughs> but we are we are starting to, to get caught up. And we are going to read uh, an email from uh, Stephen, one of our early listeners. And uh, he has also been listening to our Wheel of Time pod. And uh, he interacted with them on Twitter. And I noticed he mentioned the fact that he had emailed us a long time ago and we had never um, read his stuff on air, whereas the our Wattpod had already responded to some of his stuff. And so I felt kind of guilty about that. But we are, hey, we're, we are paying attention. And now that we're getting through our emails, we're going to talk about Stephen's email here, which is wonderful. And it's talking about Gandalf and Saruman's fight. So here we go. Hey, I recently discovered your podcast and I absolutely love it. I haven't caught up yet on the older episodes, but the latest ones where you were discussing the movies have been great episodes. Thanks, Stephen. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. We love hearing that. Um, I just listened to the latest episode where you discuss the fight between Gandalf and Saruman, and I think you're looking at it the wrong way. I absolutely love that scene because it's so raw. There isn't anything flashy about it. When wizards fight, it's not about who has the better tricks or flashy spells. It's all about how much raw power you can hit your opponent with. In the scene, Gandalf and Saruman are throwing raw power at each other, which is being visualized by them being thrown around the room. Their magic is keeping their bodies from breaking as they withstand the attacks of power before throwing an attack back. In the end, Saruman overpowers Gandalf. I will accept that the spinning bit at the end is a bit over the top, but Saruman is also incredibly vain, e.g. Saruman of many colors, so having a flashy victory dance is his style. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like thinking about uh, Saruman's victory dance, like he's got an end zone dance going on. Um, <laughs> but I, I like this take on it. Um, so this was actually an episode we did with your old friends, Aubrey and Jesse, and I expressed my absolute hatred for this scene. It was one of the low points in the um, trilogy for me, just because mm -hmm. it was one of those things that 
you don't need to see everything. You know, you don't need to show everything. Sometimes it's better for things to be left to the imagination. Um, right. We never see wizards fight. And it's almost more fun to try and fill in that gap with your, your own imagination. What, what what could it be? Whereas if someone shows it to you, it can be kind of um, underwhelming. It's like, oh, they're like pushing each other around with their staffs. It seemed kind of hokey. It's like a bunch of old guys fighting. So it didn't work for me at all, just visually, lore-wise. But I agree. And yeah, we were in agreement with that. But I like Steven's take here. It, it, it makes sense. You know, if you really have to think through how would these wizards fight? If I had my druthers, there's not really fighting going on. I know that Gandalf does fight, but you know his power is not in in military might swing the sword or even swing the staff. Um, so I wouldn't even really want them to fight at all. I want it to be some kind of other more spiritual, like representation of a spiritual battle. But I don't know how you do that visually. And maybe right. this was about the best way they could because they're, they're just, like he says, Stephen says, they're just using their staffs to throw raw power at each other. Um, and you kind of see them being, they're getting tired and exhausted, throwing this power at each other and absorbing the, the blows from the other. You know, this isn't really a physical fight. This is a spiritual fight. It's just being represented by the toll it's taking on their bodies. Um, so that's, and we know an that point. it, we know that it took an actual toll on the actors' bodies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we talk about that in the episode. Yeah, this yeah. looked really intense for them. Yeah. Um, I mean, Christopher Lee and Ian McKellen were all dudes, even at that point. So this was a, a bit tough for them. Yeah, and I mean, I yeah, I appreciate when people disagree, and I like to hear when people enjoyed something and why they enjoyed it. And I actually think that this scene were, would have worked if they would have just let their foot off the gas pedal a little bit, not gone so far down uh-huh. that road. For example, the spinning, they could have cut it off a little bit earlier and it would have been just as effective for us to use our imaginations about the rest of the fight. I think it was just too long of a fight scene. Um, but anyway, I won't I won't continue to rag on it. Steven, thank yeah. you for writing yeah. us. I love that, you know, you have a different take and, mm-hmm. and I definitely, I love hearing from people yeah. Who listen to the show or who, you know, get their news from elsewhere too mm-hmm. and come to our show and say, hey, I heard this and this is an update. This is different than what you said. You know, it's all part of the community that we're building here. Yeah, so, absolutely. Thanks for just interacting. Stephen has some other good points that I want to I want to raise here um, because we had made the argument or I, I think I'd raise the point that um, if they have the ability if they have the ability to move things with their mind, why aren't they doing that all the time? You know, why isn't that a power uh, they're using all the time? And he counters and he says, in terms of why you don't see those powers in the rest of the movie, you do. When Gandalf fights the Balrog and the Nazgul, he uses raw power infused with light because light hurts the dark forces. But it's still raw power he's throwing at them. Also, Gandalf shatters Saruman's staff by overpowering him. No flashy spells, it just explodes. He doesn't use raw power against a non Maiar. Uh, or Nazgul, though, but I'm guessing that is part of the rules the Astari are supposed to follow. Um, and I, I will just break in here. He does do it against the Nazgul. Um, we see it when he rides out to protect Faramir. Faramir is riding back from um, the, the sack of Osgiliath, and he's being chased by the Nazgul, and um, Gandalf rides out as a, as a white rider, and he's got that, that white light, and it sort of um, scares them away. 
Um, as a side note, it even goes on, the Nazgul does this to Gandalf too, but I've always hated that scene as I don't think the Nazgul is more powerful than Gandalf. Parenthetical, I am happy to be corrected on this though. After this scene, he doesn't use any magic again, and it's not until the end that he has a staff again. Maybe it was a way to weaken him in the movies for his scenes with Pippin and against the Black Gates to avoid the why doesn't he use magic questions. Um, so this this was, I, I thought this was interesting because I guess I never really th- thought about linking the Gandalf's fight with the Balrog and the Nazgul with his fight with Saruman, but framing them as, you know, a version of power. Um, and visual, the way that they visually depict it is slightly different but it's all just boils back down to like, hey, I got some power and I'm going to display it in some way. So I thought that was a very interesting point and um, I I feel corrected. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. I didn't even think about why, you know, that he the fact that he doesn't use, quote unquote, his magic or powers much towards the latter half and... The room that makes total sense. They had to remove his staff so that people wouldn't be like find the the plot hole. Like, well, why doesn't Gandalf just blah 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 blah? Right, right. Kick butt. And this is all but, ultimately just an area where we just get to use our imagination because the rules and mechanics of magic in the Legendarium don't really exist. Um, because there isn't really such a thing as magic in the way that we conceive of it, like in the Harry Potter universe or or other fantasy universes. It's not really magical powers per se. It's it's more... He, Tolkien doesn't spend time explaining. Not and at I all. like that. I love it. I like that. You don't need to. But, you know, you, the less is more, actually. Yeah. And actually, you know, the characters that are that are hobbits um, tend to think have magic, like elven magic. Um, all those characters, the elves and, and the wizards, they're like, we don't really know what you're talking about when you say magic. Um, uh, you know, this is just kind of how we are. And Tolkien in his sort of extended writings and his letters clues us into the idea that what people consider magic, what the unwise consider to be magic, it's really just the elves are just really closer to the earth and to their own nature and to the nature of Arda. Um, and I certainly the Astari are, are even closer than the elves. And so as a byproduct of that closeness, they have these other powers that that our lesser characters just can't really conceive of. And so they call it magic. And I, I love that, absolutely. Yeah, that's be- really beautiful. What a beautiful note to end the mailbag mm-hmm. on. Yep, Stephen ends. I am already eagerly awaiting the next episode. So thank you, Stephen. We really appreciate you sticking with us and uh, having some patience as we, we get through our mail. But we, we loved yours and uh, appreciate you being a listener. So um, we, will, we will keep them coming if you keep listening. With that, I think, uh, I think we've done it, Jen. I think that is a pretty good episode. I think so. We've got tons more news, as Michael mentioned, tons to get through. So we're definitely going to do another news episode. We're continuing doing the review of the movies. We have big plans in the work for the podcast network. Stay tuned, folks. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And may the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time. So, Jen, for the Grey Havens, I have just about the most exciting piece of news we've ever had for a Grey Havens episode. Our podcast is 
to look at Tolkien through the lens of adaptation. And never has there been something more uh, appropriate for us than this particular nugget, which is, uh, according to The Guardian and other news outlets picked it up, original scripts for the first 12 episode um, BBC audio dramatization of Lord of the Rings back in the 50s, traces of which had previously been believed to be totally lost, have now been discovered. Um, this was so, and I'm not talking about the, the Brian Sibley Shibley. Oh boy. Someone's going to tweet at me. Um, <laughs> th- there was a, a subsequent BBC radio, um, audio dramatization by, um, um, that Ian Holmes was a part of. Ian Holmes actually played Frodo and people mm-hmm. love that. Um, I've listened to it. It's great. It's a lot of fun. Um, and people really like that one, but there was a prior BBC adaptation that Tolkien hated. And and it, there was no recording of it because it's the 50s, uh, 55, 56. And so there's no recording of it. And no one really had any record of it whatsoever other than, you know, it was known to have happened, but there were no scripts. There was nothing left of it. But lo and behold, um, a, an Oxford scholar dug into the BBC archives and found that the scripts had been totally preserved, all of the scripts. Um, and so this is like, oh my God, this is so exciting. Like, I can't wait to, I hope that we get to read the full scripts start to finish. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they will be in a museum or put, hopefully put online. I think this is so cool because it has, you know, Tolkien himself, his hand, he made tons of notes and crossed out things and reworked scenes. So you can actually see his notes on the script. That's really exciting. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, as the Guardian article points out, it is particularly relevant now because Tolkien in his notes, it sounds like, uh, and working on this adaptation, he was assisting in the task of compressing, um, shortening, cutting characters out, like making those decisions. So he clearly acknowledged and respected the fact that for that particular medium, certain concessions to the narrative format of audio drama had to be made um, and changes could be made to fit that format. And so he got it. You know, we talked about this early on and, you know, what does the lens of adaptation mean to us and our sort of rules of adaptation? Um, And one of which was sort of under, it was all sort of underpinned by the observation that in order to tell the same story in a different medium, you have to change certain details in terms of plot Mm -hmm. or character. Sometimes those things have to give way in order to tell the same core story. And it seems like Tolkien was sympathetic to that because he went along with that process in the context of this BBC adaptation. Now, ultimately, right. I believe he hated the the results. Um, you know, we see in his <laughs> letters that that he called them silification. He referred to them the, the silification that the BBC did. So he didn't really like the end result. But nonetheless, um, I'll be really interested to see what his notes were on on the process. And they will be at least some portion of these scripts um, will be featured in a new book titled The Great Tales Never End, Essays in Memory of Christopher Tolkien. Um, and that's a book that sounds like it's going to be a compilation of multiple essays and contributions from various academics where they're paying tribute to um, Christopher Tolkien's scholarship, uh, who recently died, of course, in, in 2020. Um, so I don't know if the full scripts are going to be included in that book or just portions of them. I would suspect, um, this would be just my luck, I think they're probably just going to be portions or excerpts, and then the author will talk about the excerpts. So we're not going to be able to get, we're not going to get to see the whole thing start to finish. 
Um, cause there's all kinds of stuff that, that hasn't been published. That's just sitting in a vault somewhere that the, that, um, will probably never see the light of day in terms of the full publication. Um, and I'm afraid that this will probably be one of those things, but if we are lucky enough to get the full scripts, someone, maybe a podcast you like, will have to produce, reproduce the audio dramatization using these scripts. It has to be done. It absolutely has to be. Oh, yeah. It would be a damn shame to let this go to waste. Yeah. Um, especially because Tolkien himself had his hands all over it. And, you so, know, I'll, I enjoy some good silification. Yeah. And nothing's wrong with a little silification now and then. <laughs> in moderation. In moderation. In moderation, yeah. No, this is a this is a really cool bit of news. Um, if you do read the article um, that we're referencing, something that you'll get a kick out of is this is this is from the Guardian article. It mentions that Tol- Tolkien absolutely loathed Disney and Disney productions. Oh yeah, uh huh. I thought that was really funny that um, he. He had a heartfelt loathing for Disney productions, specifically <laughs> Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Deep rooted, yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I love too what, much silification. Too much silification. I love what Disney did. It 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 has a very important place um, in the arc of animation and storytelling uh, in America and worldwide. But you know, his aesthetic and his approach to telling these fairy tales was very very different from Tolkien's. And uh, basically, they took these very adult Grimm's fairy tales and, you know, made them musicals and fun for kids and fun for the family. And, and that was totally antithetical to Tolkien's belief that fairy tales were for adults, um, that maybe kids could enjoy them, but they didn't need to be dumbed down for, for the benefit of kids. So, um, he he says that a few times. Right. I, I tend to agree. Although I do like Disney, I'm going to admit right now for the nostalgia piece. Definitely, there's a nostalgia factor. But um, yeah, if this ever sees the light of day, you can bet we'll want to jump all over and produce something like this someday. That would be incredible. We probably get shut down in about five minutes from uh, two seconds. Or, or but if <laughs> you else. if you hop on long enough to hear, you'll hear it. <laughs> all right, and then we'll get sued. <laughs>